Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Iron deficiency anemia is one of the most common types of anemias, and it can be easily corrected with iron supplementation. With that being said, providers often question what the optimal treatment is for their patients, especially given the historical association of intravenous iron and infusion reactions. Here to help us iron out the details to this complex issue is Dr. Michaela Wormers, a pharmacist at Mayo Clinic. Let's listen in as Dr. Wormers reviews iron deficiency anemia treatment options and the literature regarding select disease states in which iron therapy provides an added benefit. Imagine this, you are rounding with the multidisciplinary team when the attending turns to you and states that one of your patients is iron deficient. She asked, asks, well, should we start IV iron therapy or oral iron therapy? And based on what route you select, what's your product preference and why? After this presentation today, you'll be able to make an appropriate product selection based on patient-specific characteristics. My learning objectives for you today are to define therapeutic options and appropriate dosing methods for oral iron replacement, to identify the various intravenous iron therapies and discuss product differences, and to review literature of select disease states in which iron therapy is utilized. Before we dive into the iron products, we'll first discuss some background information. About 10 million people in the United States have iron deficiency, and of these 10 million people, 5 million of them have iron deficiency anemia. This is more commonly affecting women and children than it is men. And there are two types of iron deficiency. The first type is absolute. This means patients have a deficiency of total body iron stores. And the second type is functional, which means the patient has enough total body iron stores, but there's sequestration of iron causing inadequate iron supply for erythropoiesis. Signs and symptoms of iron deficiency that our patients might present with include weakness, fatigue, cognitive impairments, and cravings for non-nutritional substances. The way in which iron is regulated within our bodies is quite sophisticated, and it's important so that iron doesn't build up and cause creation of reactive oxygen species. The liver is the main site of systemic iron regulation, and this is because this is the location of production of the iron regulatory hormone, hepcidin. Hepcidin is the master regulator of systemic iron homeostasis, and it works by balancing the utilization and storage of iron with iron acquisition, and this is upregulated in inflammatory states. Hepcidin works by binding to ferroportin. Ferroportin is one of the iron transporters that is required for release of iron from other cell types, such as in macrophages and hepatocytes where it is highly expressed. When hepcidin binds to ferroportin, it causes ferroportin internalization and degradation, and thus iron cannot get into the plasma. However, when hepcidin is downregulated, then iron is able to bind to ferroportin and get into our plasma. Iron is also sophisticated enough to recycle itself. Once it is released from the red blood cells at the end of the life cycle, it is then used for production of erythrocytes in the bone marrow as well. 
Now that we know how iron is regulated within our bodies, the question next is how do we assess if our patients are iron deficient? And there are several laboratory values that we can utilize in order to determine this. There's serum iron, which refers to the ferric ions bound to serum transferrin. This is affected by several things such as our dietary intake. This will be low in iron deficiency. TSAT is how much transferrin is saturated with iron. Transferrin is another one of the transporter proteins for iron. And this will typically be low in iron deficiency as well, but this doesn't give us any quantitative information as to how much iron is within our bodies. And then ferritin is the intracellular storage form of iron. And this is often falsely elevated in inflammatory states. So think of your patients with infection, liver disease, and malignancy as well. This will be low in iron deficiency, but it will be falsely elevated in those inflammatory states. TIBC, or total iron binding capacity, is interpreted as the availability of iron binding sites while on transferrin. And because our body is trying to maximize the utilization of the iron that our body has, this will be elevated in iron deficiency. And then finally, soluble transferrin receptor is more so a laboratory value that we obtain here at Mayo, but we do utilize this in patients where ferritin concentration will not correlate well with iron status. And this will be increased in iron deficiency as well. Now that we understand how iron is regulated within our bodies and how we can assess if a patient is iron deficient, the next step is how exactly we treat patients if they are iron deficient. And we'll go ahead and start with the oral iron therapy options. There are several options, as you can see here, with variable standard size tablets and elemental iron. I will point out that in terms of elemental iron, there were studies that showed that patients will better absorb the iron products in doses of less than 80 milligrams. So it's recommended to not dose these products in greater than 80 milligrams of elemental iron daily. You'll also note that the cost is quite low for the majority of these products and that they come in various formulations, including immediate release, extended release, elixirs, solutions, and syrups as well, making it an option for children to take easily. The products that we most often use are ferrous fumarate, ferrous gluconate, and ferrous sulfate, so those top three products. And iron, oral iron products are a great option because our patients are able to easily obtain these and they don't have to go into infusion centers in order to receive the doses. Now you may be wondering, well, how do I dose oral iron in my patients if I do select one of these products? We'll go ahead and review one of these, this study, which is an open label randomized control trial. The intervention was giving patients either 60 milligrams of ferrous sulfate daily for 14 days or every other day for 28 days. They included patients who were healthy females between the age of 18 and 45, who had depleted iron stores, which they defined as a ferritin of less than 25, but did not have anemia. So they had to have a hemoglobin of above eight. They could also not be on any chronic medications or have chronic diseases. They could not be pregnant or lactating. They had to have a CRP of less than five in order to exclude those patients in an inflammatory state. And they also had to have a normal BMI with a body weight of less than 80, as patients who are overweight or obese often have subclinical inflammation. What they found was that in the alternative day dosing group, the fractional iron absorbed and the total iron absorbed in milligrams was higher than in the consecutive day dosing group. 
and these were both statistically significant. They also compared the serum hepcidin levels at the end of treatment as well. And while the 28-day dosing serum hepcidin was higher at 28 days, they went back and looked at what that value was at day 14, and it was right around 0.8. So this was found to be statistically significantly lower than the hepcidin level at day 14, at day 14 for the consecutive day dosing group. What they concluded from this trial was that more frequent doses of iron raised circulating hepcidin levels and reduced subsequent fractional iron absorption. They also concluded that the total iron absorbed was significantly higher with every other day dosing. So what this means for me is that when I have a patient that I'm initiating on oral iron, I will preferentially want them to be on every other day dosing if I think they can remember to take it every other day. Unfortunately, oral iron does not come without its side effects. About 40% of patients will experience gastrointestinal side effects, including constipation, nausea, and vomiting. However, before I switch to IV iron, I'll try some alternative solutions, such as switching products in general, switching from an immediate release to extended release formulation, trialing them and having them take it with food, and definitely switching to every other day dosing if they're not taking it every other day yet. If none of these solutions work, then I'll consider IV iron for them. It's also recommended that they take these products at least 30 minutes before a meal and two hours before taking other medications, in addition to avoid taking it with milk, calcium, antacids, high fiber foods, and caffeine. And again, both of these are in order to optimize absorption of the oral iron. Now, some studies have looked at combination of oral iron with orange juice and vitamin C supplementation, and they did find that there is a potential increase of about 5% when these are taken in combination. Once we start patients on oral iron, the way that we recommend monitoring is to reevaluate after two to three weeks of initiation of therapy, not only to assess for tolerability of oral iron, but also to assess their hemoglobin status. We'll typically see the hemoglobin rise by about two grams per deciliters after a few weeks on treatment. So in summary for the oral iron therapy, they are similar across the board in terms of safety and efficacy. So you can select the product that is most accessible for your patients. I also highly recommend dosing these products every other day, given that there is an acute decrease in iron absorption when it's dosed daily. And finally, before switching to IV iron, attempt various dosing strategies to see if patients can tolerate another formulation better. Now that we've reviewed all of the oral iron therapies, we can do our first learning assessment question. GS is a 78-year-old female with a past medical history of hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and type 2 diabetes. Her iron studies are consistent with iron deficiency anemia. What iron replacement recommendation would you make for her? A, ferrous sulfate, 325 milligrams daily. B, ferrous gluconate, 240 milligrams daily. C, ferrous sulfate, 325 milligrams every other day. Or D, recommend she receives intravenous iron repletion. And remember to text your response to Mayo RX to 22333. You can also go to www.pollev.com slash MayoRx to submit your results. Okay, great. It looks like the majority of you are choosing the correct answer, which is C, ferrous sulfate, 325 milligrams every other day. As I just mentioned, patients are 
able to have optimized absorption of oral iron when they take it every other day, which is why C is incorrect. I mean, correct. A and B are incorrect because these are dosed daily and patients will not absorb the iron as well as they would if they took it every other day. And D is incorrect because the candidate is not yet a candidate. This patient is not yet a candidate for IV iron repletion until she proves to me that she cannot take oral iron. Now, unfortunately, not all patients do have an indication for oral iron, and so we do have to escalate them to intravenous iron. And it's not that these patients won't tolerate oral iron, but it's that they won't necessarily absorb the medication well or reap the benefits from it. Patients that should receive intravenous iron include those with severe ongoing blood loss, and this is because these patients will need a more acute rise in hemoglobin, which will be obtained better with IV iron. Patients with oral iron intolerance, as I just alluded to, should receive IV iron. Most pregnant patients will often require intravenous iron in order to ensure they are meeting the hemoglobin requirements needed for appropriate fetal development. And then the bottom three, malabsorption syndromes such as celiac disease, chronic inflammatory states such as rheumatoid arthritis, and patients who had gastric surgery done should all receive intravenous iron because their bodies will not allow them to absorb oral iron well. So that brings me into what products are on the market. This is a timeline of IV iron therapy based on FDA approval, and these are the products that we are more commonly using today. You can see that back in 1992, low molecular weight iron dextran was approved, followed by sodium ferric gluconate complex or ferric gluconate, then iron sucrose, ferrimoxitol, ferric carboxymaltose, and most recently in 2020, ferric dorisomaltose. This goes over all of the FDA approved indications. This is more so just a four-year information slide, but what I do want to draw your, your attention to here is that two of these products have a black box warning, iron dextran and ferrimoxitol. And so we'll go over these black box warnings in depth. Ferrumoxytol's warning is for fatal hypersensitivity reactions, including anaphylaxis. Patients at highest risk of these anaphylactic reactions are those who had a historical reaction to IV iron. Mayo Clinic has intravenous administration guidelines, and they recommend that patients receive frequent vitals throughout the 15-minute infusion and one-to-one -one nursing time during this infusion as well. Iron dextran, has a more historically, is more historically labeled with a black box warning due to anaphylactic type reactions. And we'll discuss here shortly why that's the case. We do still recommend to administer test doses. However, unfortunately, patients will still experience reactions even if they do tolerate test doses in some cases. Patients at higher risk of anaphylactic reactions with iron dextran include those who have a history of drug allergies, or a history of asthma and COPD. The IV administration guidelines for iron dextran do still recommend frequent vitals, but they don't necessarily require that one-to-one -one nursing time. As I alluded to, iron dextran's black box warning is more so due to historical reasons, and that's because prior to the low molecular weight formulation, there was a high molecular weight iron dextran product on the market. However, this was removed from the market back in 2009 as it has a higher labile free iron percentage 
that causes toxicity within patients and causes those anaphylactic reactions. The new low molecular weight formulation, however, shielded the elemental iron from rapid release, and so it's associated with far fewer events. It's three times less likely to cause life-threatening events and seven times less likely to cause non-life-threatening events. And so there was a retrospective review performed of over 30 million IV iron doses. And what they found was that there were no differences in side effects between low molecular weight iron dextran, ferric gluconate, or iron sucrose. So what they concluded from this study was that the products were all safe as long as high molecular weight iron dextran was avoided. Now that you're aware of some of the more historical things surrounding IV iron, we can now compare the six products that we do currently use. You can see here that iron dextran is the only product that does require a test dose and that potentially requires pre-medications. I would recommend pre-medicating a patient who has two or more drug allergies, who has a history of uncontrolled asthma or COPD, a history of active IBD, or a previous reaction to IV iron. However, if I am considering utilizing pre-medications for a patient, then I'll likely be selecting a different iron product. In terms of dosing, iron dextran, as I mentioned, has that 25 milligram test dose over five minutes, followed by the full 970 milligram dose over an hour. Something to note is that this is not FDA dosing. The FDA approved dosing actually has you calculate an iron deficit. However, for Ease of administration, we typically recommend a gram, in addition to the fact that this iron deficit calculation usually runs close to a gram as well. And sucrose, the typical dosing that we'll use is 200 milligrams over 15 minutes as an IV infusion or over five minutes as an IV push. And you'll note that these have to be separated by at least two days. And that's because of the labile iron percentage associated with iron sucrose. On the right-hand column, I have the labile iron percentages included, and this is the percent of free iron within those products. So iron sucrose and ferric gluconate have the highest labile iron percentage, which puts them at higher risk of creating reactive oxygen species if they're given in too high of a dose. So you'll note that these two products do require lower doses and spread apart by at least two days each. For the sake of time, I won't go over all of the rest of the dosing, but I do want to just mention that with iron sucrose, there is an option to dose this higher than 200 milligrams. However, at doses higher than two to 300 milligrams, there's mixed results on whether or not this can increase the risk of infusion reactions. Some patients at these higher doses and studies were having higher risk of hypotension and loss of consciousness, so that's just something to keep in mind as well if you're selecting one of the higher doses. Now, the next question you all have is probably how expensive each of these are. You can see that the most cost affordable options are iron dextran, iron sucrose, and ferric gluconate, while the other three products are at least a couple of thousand dollars per gram. In terms of side effects, they are quite comparable across the board. However, ferumoxetol is associated with more of, of those infusion type reactions and ferric gluconate has higher risk of chest pain and fever as well. What you are probably most interested in is what the grade three infusion reaction risk is. And a grade three infusion reaction is an anaphylactic type reaction. 
There was a systematic review actually performed here by Mayo that compared all of these products, and they found that there was no statistical significantly difference across these products. However, with ferric gluconate specifically, there was a higher risk of infusion reactions. And the number needed to harm in this case was 118. Now for all of these products, Mayo does carry the majority of them, except we don't regularly stock ferric gluconate and we don't carry ferric derisomaltose either. So I'll just talk about the other five products throughout the rest of this presentation. In terms of our preferred products here at Mayo, they're iron dextran, iron sucrose, and ferric gluconate. And the restricted products are ferrumoxytol and ferric carboxymaltose. For ferrumoxytol, patients must have failed oral therapy before they can receive this, and we don't recommend to administer it inpatient due to cost. Similarly, ferric carboxymaltose is also restricted to use for patients who have failed ferrumoxytol, and due to cost, again, it's not recommended to administer inpatient. Now that we've discussed and compared all of the medications, I wanted to break down each iron product and really discuss the advantages and disadvantages. We'll start with iron dextran. This is quite convenient because it is a single replacement dose. So especially for patients who are discharging from the hospital soon or who may live in a rural area, this is a great option. It's also one of our more cost affordable products. Unfortunately, however, it is still labeled with the black box warning for anaphylactic type reactions. And we do still require a test dose for patients. Patients at higher risk of having these anaphylactic, anaphylactic reactions are those with drug allergies and COPD or asthma. Now, I also noted that iron dextran has a longer infusion time of 60 minutes, but given the fact that it's only one single replacement dose, this isn't a huge disadvantage in my opinion. We'll next compare iron sucrose and ferric gluconate together, given that they are very structurally similar. And you'll note that both of these are more of our cost affordable options. And in addition, iron sucrose can be given rapidly over just five minutes, and it's quite convenient to be given at dialysis, given it's every other day dosing. However, both of these products, given their higher percentage of labile free iron, do require multiple infusions. Iron sucrose requires five, and ferric gluconate requires eight infusions. For iron sucrose, because of some studies indicating that there's potential increase in infusion reaction risk at higher doses, I would consider using doses of less than 200 to 300 milligrams to prevent adverse effects. And then those higher doses of 300 milligrams or greater do require longer infusions if you go that route. For ferric gluconate, the only other disadvantage that I'll discuss is that we did see it has a higher risk of infusion type reactions. Next, we'll talk about ferric carboxymaltose. This has a comparable safety effect profile, and just like iron dextran, it can be given as one single replacement dose over just 15 minutes. However, it is one of the most costly options, and there's a risk of hypophosphatemia associated with it when patients receive multiple infusions. And this is due to the fact that it increases the concentration of the fibroblast growth factor 23, which increases urinary excretion of phosphorus. Ferrumoxytol, the main advantage is that it can be given rapidly. However, remember it's associated with the black box warning for fatal anaphylactic type reactions and is higher risk in patients who have had previous infusion reactions. Additionally, it was actually first created as a contrast agent for MRIs, 
And so it does have to be spread out by at least three months from any MRI. Luckily, Epic does warn us here at Mayo, if a patient is going to be given this product, it will warn the provider as they're ordering it. This is also a very costly option at several thousands of dollars. Now that we've reviewed all of the IV iron possibilities, once you give a patient a dose, how exactly do we monitor them? It is recommended to not, not to reassess iron statuses until at least four to eight weeks after the infusion, as the IV iron products can interfere with the accuracy of the laboratory values. At that time, when we assess their laboratory status, we may notice that our patient needs further iron supplementation. And at this time, I would reconsider maintenance oral dosing if a patient is an oral iron candidate. To wrap up the IV iron section, I'll review a summary of my recommendations for my preferred products. So my preferred product number one through 10 is either iron dextran or iron sucrose, followed quite a bit later down the list by the other three products. I would select iron dextran for a patient who doesn't have any infusion reaction risks, but I would choose iron sucrose if my patient had multiple drug allergies, a history of reaction to IV iron, or a history of asthma or COPD. Ferret gluconate is not, not my preferred option because it requires eight doses and it's associated with a higher risk of infusion reactions. And then ferrumoxetol and ferret carboxymaltose are not my preferred option, mostly due to cost concerns. So with that being said, we can now assess our second patient. This is PW, he's a farmer and is a 64 year old male. He is getting discharged from the hospital tomorrow and was found to have iron deficiency anemia. The team started him on oral therapy, but unfortunately, he's now having new onset gastrointestinal side effects after initiation. He has no known drug allergies. What IV iron therapy recommendation would you make for this patient? A, iron sucrose, 200 milligrams, dosed every other day for five doses. B, iron dextran, 25 milligrams, followed by the 975 milligram dose. C, ferrumoxetol, 510 milligrams, followed by another 510 milligram dose in three days. Or D, ferret carboxymaltose, 1500 milligrams. Okay, it looks like the majority of you are choosing, or all of you are choosing the correct answer, B, iron dextran. I would agree, this is the therapy recommendation I would make for this patient for several reasons. The first is that he's discharging tomorrow and he's likely from a rural area given he's a farmer. So if I can give him one dose and not worry about him having to set up infusions in a clinic, that's ideal. He also wasn't at higher risk for infusion type reactions. He didn't have drug allergies or a history of asthma or COPD. Option A is incorrect because this is not the most optimal option given it requires five doses and we would have to set up infusions. And then options C and D are not the best option given their cost. We've now reviewed all of the oral and IV iron products. And now we can discuss a few select populations in which there are more specific iron recommendations. Those include patients with heart failure, those who are pregnant, those with inflammatory bowel disease and our chronic kidney disease population. We'll start with the heart failure population where iron may have an added benefit. We'll review this study. It's called ferret carboxymaltose for iron deficiency at discharge after acute heart failure. 
This was a multi-center, double-blind, randomized control trial. They gave patients either ferric carboxymaltose, 500 milligrams, just prior to hospital discharge, and then again at week six, or a placebo product. They included patients who were greater than 18 years old, who were hospitalized for acute heart failure, who had an ejection fraction of less than 50%, and who were iron deficient. It's important to note how they defined iron deficiency. They defined it as either a ferritin of less than 100 or a ferritin of between 100 and 299, plus a TSAT of less than 20. In terms of their outcomes, the primary outcome was composite of total hospitalizations for heart failure and cardiovascular death up to 52 weeks after randomization. And the secondary outcomes looked at the composite of total cardiovascular hospitalizations and cardiovascular death, total heart failure hospitalizations, and days lost in time to the first heart failure hospitalization or cardiovascular death. What they found was although the primary outcome was not statistically significantly different between the two groups. When they further teased that out, they saw that the cardiovascular death was similar across the two groups. However, you'll see that the total heart failure hospitalizations was much lower in the ferric carboxymaltose group. And this was found to be statistically significant. When they looked at the distributions of heart failure exacerbations per patient, they found that patients who were often having multiple heart failure hospitalizations were patients in the placebo group. What they were able to conclude from this study was that in comparison with placebo, patients with acute heart failure and concomitant iron deficiency had a reduced number of total heart failure hospitalizations. So if I have a patient who has heart failure who meets the ferritin and TSAT requirements, I'll often replete their iron prior to leaving the hospital. Another population in which iron has an added benefit is patients with chronic kidney disease. And this is because patients with CKD often have a negative iron balance for several reasons. The first is that they often have reduced dietary intake. The second is that they have impaired absorption from the gut. And they actually more recently found this to be due to upregulation of our iron regulatory hormone, hepcidin. And there's also several interactions with some of their medications, such as their FOS binders. The third reason they'll have a negative iron balance is especially found in patients on hemodialysis. This is due to increased dialysis losses and increased gastrointestinal losses. So KDGO actually has set forth specific recommendations for CKD patients who may or may not have anemia and may or may not be on ESA therapy. They suggest to trial IV iron if an increase in hemoglobin concentration is desired and if the patient's TSAT is less than 30 and ferritin is less than 500. CKD patients also have specific recommendations in those who have anemia and may or may not be on ESA therapy. We should first trial oral iron in those patients unless they're on hemodialysis when their TSAT is less than 20 and ferritin is less than 100. And then the final component for the CKD patients is how often we're monitoring these labs. We should be monitoring them at least every three months or sooner if we're initiating or increasing an ESA dose, if patients have an increase in blood loss, or if we gave them an IV iron course and we want to monitor their iron status. Now there, are, there was a trial that was performed a couple of years ago called the Proactive IV Iron Therapy in Hemodialysis Patients. This was a multi-center open-label trial with a blinded endpoint evaluation. 
It was a non-inferiority study, but it had a pre-specified threshold to be able to test for superiority. So they split their patients up into two groups. The proactive group received 400 milligrams of IV iron sucrose monthly, proactively in all patients, unless the patient had a ferritin of greater than 700 or TSAT of greater than 40%. And then in the reactive group, they could receive up to 400 milligrams of iron sucrose, only reactively if the ferritin was less than 200 or TSAT was less than 20%. Now they included end-stage renal disease patients who were recently started on hemodialysis within the last 12 months, who had a ferritin concentration of less than 400, a TSAT of less than 30, and then those who were receiving ESAs. The primary outcome was time to all-cause death or a composite of non-fatal cardiovascular events, including MI, stroke, and heart failure hospitalization. And then secondary outcomes looked at the incidence of this primary endpoint, the time to and incidence of the components of the primary endpoint, and then it looked further at the ESA dose and transfusion requirements. What they found in this study was that the primary composite endpoint only occurred in 29.3% of the proactive group versus 32.3% in the reactive group. And this was found to be statistically significant. As you might've guessed, the median monthly dose of iron was higher in the proactive group, but it did, cre did decrease utilization of ESA doses. And there was also a lower rate of death, myocardial infarction, and hospitalization. So what they concluded from this study was that patients on hemodialysis treated proactively with high-dose iron were found to have a significantly lower risk of death and non-fatal cardiovascular events in comparison with low-dose reactive iron therapy. So in our CKD patient population, it's important that we're assessing those laboratory values frequently to see if they need iron repletion and to prevent some of these things as well. The next population we'll talk about is pregnancy. This is also another very important population in order to ensure we are properly treating with iron. That's because if pregnant patients do not receive enough iron throughout the course of their pregnancy and aren't meeting these hemoglobin requirements at each trimester, as I have listed here, then there's potential impacts on the physical development of the fetus. And so the CDC and ACOG actually recommend to screen all pregnant patients and recommend that they all receive at least 27 milligrams of iron daily. There was a systematic review that was performed that compared intravenous versus oral iron in pregnancy. And they found that patients who received IV iron had a higher maternal hemoglobin at delivery and a higher likelihood of achieving target hemoglobins at each trimester. These patients also had fewer medication side effects and had an increased hemoglobin level in the four to six week postpartum period. So patients who are pregnant, who are intolerant to oral therapy, non-responsive to oral therapy, or have severe iron deficiency later in pregnancy should be a candidate for IV therapy in order to ensure appropriate repletion of their iron. The final population that we'll talk about is inflammatory bowel disease. And this population is very similar to the CKD population as well, and that these patients also have chronic blood loss, and it's due to impaired absorption due to tissue inflammation and upregulation of hepcidin. This then leads to diminished iron absorption and iron deficiency, which is the most common complication of IBD. There are specific international guidelines on anemia in IBD patients, 
The preferred route is intravenous iron, as it was found to be more effective, better tolerated, and it improves patients' quality of life. And there are absolute IV indications, which is those with severe anemia, defined as a hemoglobin of less than 10, or active intestinal disease, those who are intolerant or poor responders to oral therapy, or patients on an ESA. They do say that you can trial oral iron if absolute indications aren't met, but again, there's a limitation as to how much elemental iron should be given daily due to absorption concerns and doses higher than 100 milligrams. So now that we've reviewed all of these select populations, one question that I had was, is there a product preference? And what I found was that patients with heart failure, CKD, and IBD, IV iron is the preferential product. And then for pregnancy, they recommend trialing oral iron, but then switching to IV iron if needed. However, across the board, there was no specific iron product preference, which means we need to be going back to those benefits and risks of each product and really selecting the most appropriate option for our patients. So a summary of what we've discussed for the select populations is that patients with acute heart failure and iron deficiency, IV iron reduces the risk of their heart failure hospitalization. So it's important to assess our heart failure patients' iron statuses and replete as needed. Our patients with CKD on hemodialysis will benefit from proactive administration of IV iron, and it, we saw it can reduce the risk of death and non-fatal cardiovascular events. Patients with pregnancy also benefit from iron supplementation in general. They definitely need to be repleted with oral iron and potentially IV iron as well. And then patients who have active IVD should be treated with IV iron in order to improve their quality of life. We can now discuss our third patient. JT is a 71-year-old male admitted for an acute heart failure exacerbation and is now back to his baseline weight. The patient has a ferritin of 190 and a TSAT of 12%. The patient does have a history of anaphylaxis to penicillins and hives to morphine. Should this patient receive iron repletion? And if so, with what product and for what reason? A, no, the patient's ferritin is greater than 100, so he doesn't need iron repletion. B, yes, he should receive a course of iron dextran to decrease the risk of death. C, yes, he should receive a course of iron sucrose to decrease risk of death. Or D, yes, he should receive a course of iron sucrose to decrease risk of heart failure hospitalization. It looks like the majority of you are choosing answer D, which I would agree with as the correct choice. In this patient, given his history of drug allergies, I would not want to select iron dextran, and so I would choose iron sucrose for him. And the reason that we saw in the study is that it decreases risk of heart failure hospitalizations. This is why answer choices B and C are incorrect, because it does not decrease risk of death. And A is incorrect, because our patient is a candidate for IV iron based on his ferritin and TSAT. So in summary from the presentation today, I hope that you can take away that in patients who can tolerate oral iron, to dose elemental iron products at less than 80 milligrams every other day in order to really optimize their absorption of oral iron. I next recommend utilizing either iron dextran or iron sucrose for patients who require IV repletion. I would choose iron dextran in patients who don't have infusion reaction risks, and in patients who do, I would select iron sucrose. And then as I just mentioned, there are separate recommendations regarding iron repletion for patients with heart failure, CKD, IBD, and those who are pregnant. 
If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics. Thank you.